Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This summer, you likely saw the big top from I-91 heading into Hartford. It was the setting for Cirque du Soleil's latest show. The white tent peaking high above downtown's Market Street ironically appeared just blocks from one of the nation's worst tragedies. It happened on a hot July day in 1944. More than 8,000 people went to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus on Barber Street. 168 of them would never leave. The victims of a fast-moving inferno that ripped through the tent in less than 10 minutes, according to eyewitness accounts. Coming up, we'll hear about recent efforts to exhume the bodies of some of the unidentified victims. The Hartford Currents reporter David Altamari will join us. Now, do you have a connection to the Hartford Circus Fire? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This summer, hundreds gathered at the memorial for a ceremony marking the 75th anniversary of the tragedy. We have with us survivors accompanied by their family and friends. I remember my mother running after her, just grabbing her by her hair and saying, uh-uh, no, no, no. We're all sitting and we have to figure out how we're going to get out. Eva Norris, 43. Judy Norris, 6. Let us also remember the individuals who to this day remain unidentified. And the whole of the In the last days of 2019, Where We Live is revisiting some of our most memorable interviews this year. 88-year-old Harry Lichtenbaum is one of them. He survived the Hartford Circus fire. On that day, he was 13 years old. I asked him what it was like to attend the memorial 75 years after the tragedy. Well, 75 years later, uh, I, I'd been to the memorial. I, I was at the dedication of the memorial. I go there several times every year just to make sure it's being maintained properly and uh, the those those in charge did a wonderful job of uh, making the memorial pristine for the dedication. Describe that memorial to us for people who have not been there. Okay. The memorial is an amazing thing. When I say to someone, uh, there's a memorial in back of the Fred Wish School on Barber Street, where, which was the circus grounds uh, in 1944, uh, they, they picture uh, a, a stone monument, uh, and, and they're wrong. It's uh, not just that. Um, when it's behind, now it's behind the Wish School, but it was an open field then. So you go beyond, you go behind the Wish School, and uh, there there is a tablet explaining what you're about to witness, and then you walk on a stone path, and as you walk on the stone path, there are stanchions depicting what happened every two minutes because 
The tent went down in 10 minutes. The reason it went down so quickly is that in those days, they used to waterproof tent material with a combination of paraffin wax and gasoline. Mm. So in effect, they made the tent into a candle. Take us back to uh, when you were 13, when you heard the circus was coming to town, Harry. Oh, yeah. Uh, how did you find out about it? How d- well, the way, I, the way I found out about it is my mother worked in a sporting goods store in downtown Hartford, and she let them put a poster in the window of the store, and they gave her two passes. And uh, my sister, who was 12 years older than me, uh, decided that she would take me. I had two other brothers, but they weren't home. They they were in the service at the time. First time at the circus? It was my very first time, and I was very excited. Uh, so uh, actually, the tickets were for July 5th, the day before, but the circus train got into Hartford late, so they didn't have a matinee on the 5th. Mm. So they said anyone with tickets for the matinee on the 5th can go on the 6th, and that probably contributed to why there were so many under the tent on the 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up, we're going to speak with author Stuart Ornan again. Uh, he wrote the book The Circus Fire, a true story, the first book that was written about this uh, really terrible tragedy, one of the worst in our nation's history, and he's going to walk us through um, some of the details leading up to uh, that circus uh, and the performance that day that you were at. Uh, so when you went with your sister, uh, tell us what it was like to see this big tent and how many people were there? Well, yeah, well, uh, there have been uh, various figures, seven, eight, nine thousand people. Um, and uh, I'm not sure of the exact count. It's, it's in that area. Uh, and uh, so, so we lived on Vine Street at the time. So we walked from the two-mile walk from Vine Street to the Barber Street Circus Grounds. And I saw this tent, and I was so excited and uh, we got there a little early, and uh, I bought a bag of peanuts. Uh, uh, I, I would have liked the program, but we couldn't afford that. That was a quarter. The peanuts were a nickel. And we went in, and we sat on the left side as you go in. And I remember saying to my sister, I can't see all three rings from here. And let's move. So we did. We got up and we moved to the other side of the tent. And uh, it's fortunate that we did. Mm. So uh, describe uh, some of the acts that you saw. Uh, What was uh, um, going on before you and your sister knew that there was something wrong? Well, what happened is uh, it was time for the circus to start. And the Flying Melendez climbed the rope ladders to the uh, upper areas, and uh, the animals were kept in their cages outside of the tent. And now that the circus was ready to go, they moved the cages up to two of the entrances on the side we had originally sat. And they put passageways from the cages to the rings. 
so the animals, they could open the doors and the animals could run through the passageways into the rings and do their act. And so you were watching this. Uh, when did you know that there was a fire? Exactly. And uh, the the trainers uh, were cracking their whips and uh, the lions were doing their thing. And suddenly they turned around and headed back to their cages. Why would, why were they going back? The, the show wasn't over. Their, their act wasn't over. They went back because they smelled fire before we knew there was fire. Then someone shouted fire, and all heads turned to that direction. And there was a little spot high up on the tent. It looked like the size of a quarter. And uh, my sister said, oh, they'll put it out. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. So a minute went by, and they didn't put it out. It got bigger and bigger. And my sister said, we should leave. So we walked down the planks and out the doors, which were not blocked. The doors where we had originally sat were blocked. So it was really smart that you had said, I want to see the three rings, sister. Let's move uh, to this other area. Uh, You mentioned that first your sister said that, oh, someone will deal with the fire. Did you feel like that was the sense that a lot of people in the audience had that, uh, you know, or they maybe thought that this is part of the act in a way? Exactly. Uh, not particularly that it was part of the act, but that that they would put it out. I mean, there there had been uh, small fires uh, at the circus at different towns when they'd stopped, and they had buckets of water ready, and they threw them on, and and the fires went out. Uh, you were able to get out with your sister. What was the scene like outside the tent here? Yes, well, we, we yes we walked down the planks and and out the door. And uh, when we got a safe distance away, we turned around, and I could see people clamoring to get out of the tent to, to because it was the fire was spreading fast because of the mixture that had been put on it, and and I said to my sister, let's go back and try to help them, and we took a couple steps toward the tent, and we couldn't do it. It was like someone had opened an oven door, and the heat from the fire just prevented us from going out. Did you feel when you um, wanted to go back and you couldn't? Uh, so what did you do? Did your sister and, I, and you just, just decide, let's go back home, let's go find our mom? That's about the size of it. <laughs> so we uh, we headed back up uh, Barber Street, and my sister knocked at, at a door, and said, can I use your telephone? They didn't have cell phones in those days. And uh, they said yes. And uh, my mother had been out to lunch, and she did not know what had been going on. And my mother, and she called up my mother and said, Mom, we're all right. My mother said, why shouldn't you be all right? What, has something happened? Yes, something had happened. Did you know of other people that went to the circus that day, Harry, that didn't get out? That's an interesting question. Um, when Remember, I was 13 years old, and when we went back to school in the fall, nobody talked about it. Like they didn't say, were you at the circus this summer? No, nothing. No one talked about it. So I didn't know 
anyone that had been there at that point. But then Connecticut Public Television produced a documentary, The Circus Fire, and I'm watching the documentary, and I'm seeing people who went to school with me, and I hadn't any idea that they were there too. Mm. Uh, Harry Lichtenbaum is in studio with me here on Where We Live. Uh, He was 13 at the time of the Hartford Circus Fire. Uh, 75 years later, uh, people are still talking about it. It was one of the worst tragedies in our nation's history. Uh, Harry, uh, you have uh, spoken about um, your experience many times. Um, I'm curious, did you ever go back to the circus? Yes, I did. Uh, years later, um, I did go back, and uh, I I tried to put it away, but I think about it every day. I don't dwell on it. Someone asked me if I if I consider myself uh, a person who went to the, no. I don't consider myself a person that went to the fire. That's not how I how I define myself. But I was there, and I think about it every day. Someone will light a cigarette, or something will be burning on the stove. And uh, when I see someone drop a lit cigarette, I'll step on it. I'm very conscious of fire now. Is it difficult for you to talk about your experiences? Why do you feel it's important to share them? That's a good question. Uh, I, I don't want, I don't want the the events that happened that day to become lost. Uh, and if if my relating my story keeps the memory alive, that's enough. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Harry Lichtenbaum. Uh, after the break, we're going to continue to talk with Harry and hear from author Stuart, or- Stuart Ornan, who wrote The Circus Fire, a true story. Seventy-five years later, do families affected officials know how that fire started? What is its legacy today? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The first thing that I remember is that it got bright where we were sitting. One of my aunts had her two sons there says, come on, we're getting up, we're getting out of here. But there were two gentlemen that were standing down in front, waving their arms, oh, sit down, be calm, be quiet. They'll have this out right away. My aunt says, we're not staying here, let's go. The exits were blocked by the tiger cages and uh, someone with a jackknife cut a hole in the tent, and we all escaped through there. Those are voices of Hartford Circus Fire survivors, Bernard Crutt, Norman Carter, and Iris Schlank, in audio recordings produced by the Hartford Current. Uh, Today we're talking about the Hartford Circus Fire, 75 years uh, since that uh, tragedy um, took 168 lives, uh, many more injured. In studio with me is one of the survivors, Harry Lichtenbaum. Uh, We heard a little bit of his story. And joining us now by phone is author Stuart Onan, 
who wrote the book, The Circus Fire, A True Story. Uh, you've probably read some other uh, books by Stuart Ernan. He's written a lot of them. Stuart, welcome to our show. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, what drew you uh, to The Circus Fire uh, as a, a, a book? Uh, you've written lots of fiction novels, including one about the Red Sox. I'm just curious uh, how you got turned uh, to this project. Well, I was doing research uh, for a book that was set in the year 1944, and so I was reading a lot of Life magazines from that period, and I came across the very famous picture of Emmett Kelly uh, at the circus fire that day. He's in his weary willy clown outfit, and he's carrying a bucket of water, and behind him you can see the smoke coming up from the bleachers. And I thought, wow, what a, a strange image. Um, and uh, I was out in Oklahoma at the time, but then we moved to Hartford. I got a job at Trinity, and I said, oh, this is where that fire took place. I should find out more about it, and so I went to where else? The library, and I asked my reference librarian there, do you have a book about the Hartford Circus Fire? Because I'd love to to read something, and she was like, no, and I said, well, let's let's interloan one from, you know, somewhere around Connecticut, and she said, no, no, there, there actually isn't one, and I thought, wow, that's that's really strange. That 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 shouldn't be. It seems such like a strange and fantastic event, um, unique. And so I started asking people around town of that age, you know, do you know anything about the Hartford Circus Fire? And everybody had a story. Um, people would tell me how they didn't go to the circus that day. It was too hot, so their aunt took them to the movies or took them swimming or took them to the pond. Um, so even people that weren't there felt a connection somehow to it. Um, and it, it seemed to me a really big story. Um, everyone knew where they were. It was like when JFK was shot or, or at 9-11. Mm. It is surprising thinking about how horrific that day was and the, what you just said about everyone knowing uh, had some personal connection. Uh, so, Stuart, uh, take us through, uh, when I was reading your book, it's interesting, you open up uh, the book uh, talking about another circus fire, this one in 1942 in Cleveland. Tell us why you included that. Well, I mean, one of, the, one of the major questions about the circus fire is, why was it so terrible? Why did this happen? And the reason it happened was, as Harry said, uh, the waterproofing, uh, the paraffin and white gasoline mixture that they put on the canvas was absolutely deadly, and they knew it. In 1942, the menagerie tent, which had camels and lions and elephants inside it, burned down in Cleveland, and it went down in about five minutes. It was smaller than the big top, um, and it killed you know, scores of large animals. Uh, so they knew that that top was, was dangerous. Uh, 1942 was also the year of the Coconut Grove fire up in Boston, which killed 492 people because, one, the exits were totally inadequate, and two, the interior decorations actually created a poison smoke once they caught fire. So the fire laws all across the U.S. changed at that point and said if you have any decorations in, you know, in a restaurant or a nightclub or something like that, they have to be fireproof. Um, and the circus ignored this, um, partly because they, they had what was called a temporary structure. Um, and, and they kind of slipped by uh, kind of on a technicality. Um, and, and that's the why. So that's why I started in Cleveland. Mm. Uh, Harry mentioned that that big top was like a candle, the idea of, of, of covering it with wax and gasoline. I mean, hearing that detail now, any one of us could think, who would think that was a good idea? And yet I talked with a young soldier from Connecticut the other day who said when they were overseas in the Middle East, they used canvas that was treated exactly that way that they bought locally. Mm. 
Uh, your book is broken up chronologically, again, starting with 1942, going all the way up uh, to 1999. Uh, there's a section uh, labeled July 5th, uh, 1944, which we heard Harry say he actually, he and his sister had tickets for that um, actual uh, act. Um, but the one passage that I wanted to read um, that you included uh, all the preparations the day before the circus was to, to uh, perform, uh, you write, no one made arrangements with the Hartford Fire Department. Neither did the department send anyone to inspect the grounds. Executive officers of the department would later say they would they could not recall nor produce any records to indicate ever providing protective measures in any circus showing in Hartford over the past 30 years. Was this common not just in Hartford, but in other cities when the circus came to town? They got away with uh, the, these technicalities, not making sure that um, people would be able uh, to exit or that there wouldn't be a horrible fire like this? It varied from city to city, the laws about temporary structures. But you would think that Hartford, which was you know, the home of the insurance industry, right? Um, you know, Hartford Life and Fire, um, that they would have been a bit more stringent about it, especially with the war on, because... We were using incendiary bombs against, say, Tokyo or Dresden. And here in Hartford, which was a target, we had uh, Pratt & Whitney. We had Royal Typewriter, which is making machine guns. We had Underwood. um, And and we should have been ready for it. And we were. And almost every other level, we were ready for an emergency. We were prepared. We had a plan. But for actually inspecting the tent, we didn't have any plan whatsoever. Mm. Stuart Onan is joining us by phone. He's author of The Circus Fire, True Story of an American Tragedy. In studio with me, Harry Lichtenbaum, uh, who was 13 at the time, uh, in 1944, went to the circus with his sister, one of the the lucky ones uh, to be able uh, to escape that horrific fire. Uh, Harry, uh, you're one of many people that uh, Stuart interviewed uh, for this book. Uh, uh, Tell us about how you met Stuart. Yes, well, uh, 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 one day in in the Harper Current, <clears throat> excuse me. One day in the Harper Current, I saw a a, a notice uh, that uh, Stuart wanted to um, meet um, anyone who had a connection to the Harper Circus fire, and um, and I responded, and. Um, and he, he interviewed me and uh, took my story, and um, among many others, is, is, he can tell you. I'm sure his response was huge, because when the book was dedicated at the state library, um, I'm sure they didn't know how many people were going to come. Well, <laughs> it, it was an overwhelming uh, 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 crowd of people uh, who came to the dedication. Mm. Stuart, how many survivors did you interview? I want to say over 200, um, but also the families of, of the people that actually did make it as well. Um, and, you know, I, I learned so much about, about the city, um, about the towns around the city. Um, it, it was an amazing learning experience for me, and it really changed the way that I see life, and it certainly changed my writing. I, I talked with a lot of people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s um, for about three years, um, and it, it's, you know, the next book I wrote was about her woman in her 70s. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I've written just recently a new book about a, woman, uh, a man in his 70s. There's another book there about a woman in her 80s. So the stories that the survivors and their families told me weren't just about the circus fire. They told me about 
their neighborhoods and their schools and their their doctors and their towns and you know how the world had changed since then and their children and their grandchildren you know life stories you can join our conversation here on where we live as we uh, look back on the Hartford Circus fire uh, that happened uh, July 6 1944 uh, Dan's calling from East Haven Dan go ahead hey yeah first I'd like to say I, I'm a I'm a uh, historian, um, and I actually read your book um, uh, in class and had to write a paper on it, and that's when I found out my grandmother was supposed to be going to the, the, the circus that day, but her boyfriend decided to take her out on a date, so she went the day before. But uh, a lot of her friends went, and they ended up um, ended up getting caught in the fire, and uh, a couple of them ended up perishing, but uh, I only found that out about 15 years ago after she had passed away, but um, you know, if... if if she ended up going that day, uh, I may not have uh, may not have been around. And um, you know, I want to say thank you for writing that book because, like you said, there's nothing out there on it, and uh, it's uh, it's it's important to keep those memories alive so we know what's happened in our past. Well, thank you, Dan. And and did she ever talk about the circus fire? She never did. She really never did because of you know because of knowing the people that that had died. Um, it was just something she didn't run, ever think about. And I only found out when my dad told me, and this was probably, like I said, 10, 10 or 15 years ago that I found out. And uh, I kind of wish I talked to her about it. But, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people are in their 70s and 80s and, and above. And, um, you know, once once they go, that that history has gone. And it's important to uh, important to keep that alive. And I find sometimes we don't listen to people that are older, too. They kind of disappear. They become invisible to us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a traveling military show, so I, I know what it's like talking to people, and it's important to just, you know, talk to, you know, especially the people that were involved in things like that, to, to talk about it, because it is important. Even if you don't think it is, uh, it's, it's important to keep those, those stories going. Well, Dan, thank you so much uh, for calling in uh, here on Where We Live. My guest, Stuart Onan, who wrote the book, The Circus Fire, A True Story of American Tragedy, and one of the survivors of that uh, day, Harry Lichtenbaum, a Connecticut resident who was 13 at the time, is in studio with me. Uh, Dan, uh, Stuart, I wanted to go back to you uh, and ask, um, you know, we heard uh, Harry's account of what happened, but uh, take us through some of the things that you learned about that day, um, including some of the details that, uh, you know, are very interesting to read about. Um, you know, we're going to talk more about, you know, what some of the theories were about how the fire started. But when there was that moment where someone first spotted that uh, first uh, spark or small fire, uh, the circus staff, the band actually w- um, had um, a song that they would play to alert uh, them that something was wrong. Can you tell us about that? Well, their emergency song was Stars and Stripes Forever because everybody knew it. Um, so when the band and Merle Evans started into Stars and Stripes Forever, everybody with the show, that is the Walendas up on their wire and you know, the, the cat trainers who were getting their cats out of their cages, they understood that something very, very serious was wrong. And so everyone from the circus sort of went into this sort of alert mode, um, an emergency mode. But the, the, the people there, the, the fans, they had no idea. Um, and because they weren't expecting a fire, they were expecting a show. They were expecting excitement. Um, when they saw the flames, as, as, as Harry said, some of them just sort of froze. And they said, oh, someone's going to take care of that. Or, oh, it's part of the show. Um, it's, it's, it's a classic thing. When you, if you walked into a haunted house, 
that people are putting on for Halloween and you didn't know it was a haunted house for Halloween and suddenly people jumped out at you, you wouldn't know what to think. But when you're going to a haunted house for Halloween and you know you're going there to be scared, you know what's the appropriate response. A lot of people that day didn't have any response because they didn't know what was going on. And so they froze. Or they thought, this is way too chaotic. Let's wait and see what happens. And if you waited to see what happens, it was too late. Mm. Uh, we heard Harry describe uh, the metal chutes uh, that went from, um, I believe, the trailers from the animals into the ring or, uh, or the cages into the ring. Those metal chutes would then be the escape route so many people uh, tried to take to get out of there. Well, there was just a simple style across them. That style was probably around four to five feet wide. It probably couldn't handle more than two people abreast to go over the chutes. Um, and the chutes are about waist high um, for, for a grown person. Um, so for a lot of the children that were there and a lot of the, their caretakers, which are mostly women because the men were off working um, with, the, with the defense work in town, uh, there were a lot of aunts there, a lot of grandmothers, a lot of mothers. Um, that chute became very difficult to get across, especially when the people from behind were pushing you and squishing you up against it. And so one of the heroes of the circus is a, a young man named Bill Curley, who was on the far side of the chute, and he was helping drag people across it. He was throwing people across the chute and pulling people across the chute and saving their lives. And he never left the chute. He was still there when the, the canvas fell on him, the burning canvas. And that's where most of the casualties were there, uh, at, at the northeast corner, the northeast chute. Uh, they were all piled there. And uh, one man, one young man who was there was a, a man named Elliot Smith. And he was only six years old at the time. He was from New Britain. And he went there with his mother and his sister. And he got caught in the crush there at the northeast chute. And he got knocked down, knocked to the ground. And he could feel the, the bodies piling up on top of them. And he could hear them screaming. And then the canvas fell on them, the burning canvas fell on them. He'd hear them screaming. And then he could hear them burning. And they stopped screaming. And all he heard was silence. And he was at the bottom of the pile. He was hurt, too. He was burned some. He said it felt like stabbing to him. Um, and then quickly the, the firemen came and they poured water on it. He was like, oh good, this, this cold water feels good on me. And then he saw it rising in front of him on the ground. He was going to drown if they kept doing it. So he yelled, stop, stop, you're drowning me. Um, and they had to pull the bodies apart to pull him up and out of there. Mm. Um, and I met with him um, in, I think in 1998 out of New Britain. And he, he told me the most interesting thing about the fire in that he said, it's not about the, you know, the Little Miss 1565. It's not about that mystery. It's about the people that helped all the people who were hurt in the fire get better. It was about the nurses. It was about the doctors. It was about the parents and the siblings and the teachers and the coaches that helped these kids, you know, four, five, six, seven years old, come back from you know, terrible, terrible, you know, 30, 40% of their bodies being burned, learning how to walk again, learning how to write again. Um, it was a really, really long road. And when we think about the fire, we think about this one day or this 10 minutes. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's a whole life story. You mentioned uh, Little Miss 1565. Uh, this was one of the unidentified uh, victims who uh, later on uh, would be identified as Eleanor Cook. Uh, yes, she was. In 1991, uh, she was identified as Eleanor Cook. I, I don't believe that she is Eleanor Cook. Um, Michael Skidgel, another author who's written the most recent book about the fire, also has, has great doubts about it. Uh, but for a long time, Little Miss 1565 stood in for the fire. She stood in for everybody else who was there that day. 
all the attention went to her because she was an emblem of this innocence and this innocence lost in this, this terrible, terrible fashion. And that, that, that terrible feeling that you would have as either a parent or a child of being lost, of being forgotten forever. Um, truly, truly horrifying. So it made sense that she, she stood in for the fire, but I think uh, some of the survivors um, felt a little bit resentful of that because their stories were never told. Um, where she had this you know, magazine article or newspaper article about her every year when they went back to commemorate mm. uh, her death. What do you think about that, Harry Lichtenbaum? <laughs> what do I think about it? Uh, uh, when, when I'm introduced, sometimes someone will say, who, who knows me, he was at the circus fire. And the response from the other person it, it's strange. Uh, Stuart uh, uh, mentioned this too. Um, they want to say, "Well, I wasn't there because they they really don't want to hear my story. They want to tell me why they weren't there." Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look back now, what can you tell us, Stuart, of after that terrible tragedy? After there are again 168 uh, victims, uh, hundreds more injured. Um, you know, wh- who was responsible? Who did the authorities think was responsible? Well, they could never quite pin it on anyone. They couldn't even really sort of nail down um, the origin of it. Uh, the uh, state fire marshal, uh, Mr. Hickey, was actually there that day with his nieces and nephews, um, and he was in charge of the investigation. And in the end, he found that the fire started uh, on the ground in the southwest end of the main tent in back of the bleachers there. Uh, the new investigation in 1991, led by Rick Davey and Tom Goodrow, found that it started within the men's room, which is near the entrance. It's close to that, but a little little further back there. Um, and Hickey said it must have started because of a cigarette, um, although uh, Davey and Goodrow proved that it couldn't be. The relative humidity that day was, was too high. Um, but here, here's a quote that one of the... Uh, the ushers said right after the fire, I couldn't see what caused it. The only logical thing would have been a cigarette or throwing the match down without putting it out. A cigarette would have smoked for a while, but this came all of a sudden, and it evidently was a match. And this was just you know, one of the ushers for the, for the circus. And I, I think that's the most plausible explanation, mm-hmm. that it was a match. Uh, and matches at that time were treated to, to make them last longer with paraffin. Ironically, hmm. um, I know that the Davy and Goodrow believe that Robert C. G., who is a, 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 an un, a mentally unbalanced young man, uh, actually set the fire. They I, they tried to prove that in 1991, the same time they were doing the, the Eleanor Cook identification. Uh, but I don't think they could truly, truly nail that down. Hmm. He did confess, but then later recanted. He also had a mental illness, and that. With some of the other fires, the earlier fires, including the Cleveland fire, that is the M.O. There's always some young loner who comes forward and confesses to it and then turns out to be, you know, uh, mentally challenged or, in fact, you know, lying. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Donna's calling from Cromwell. Donna, go ahead. Hi, my name is Donna Hansen, and my father was uh, at the circus fire. I met Stuart. I met you uh, when you had your book out and at the state library. He was in the fire. He was at the fire. He was 36 years old. He was a mortician in Hartford. He had never seen a 
circus before in his life. So he went the day before and took pictures of the elephants and all the crew setting up the tents, etc. He was with two older men. He was, as I say, 36 years old. And he looked over at one point and he saw a flame coming up and he thought it was they were going to put a, a act out with the lions and tigers jumping through it and he realized it wasn't he leaned over to his two co-workers and said circus is on fire let's get out of here he grabbed two boys and he ran out into the fields way out into the fields after the boys were safe and his uh partners were safe he went on to help every get people into the ambulances into anything that they could possibly get into he saw a man where one of the circus poles was burning right through his abdomen. Obviously, he, he had passed away. At that point, he came home to the house. I was three months old, and my father got down in front of my high chair and said, little girl, you're never going to see a circus on my money. Mm. Still makes me emotional. I'm sorry. Well, Donna, thank you for, for calling in to tell us about your father. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, this is where we live. Again, we're reflecting on 75 years after the tragedy uh, uh, that happened uh, right in downtown Hartford. Uh, Kip is calling from uh, Florida. Kip, go ahead. Okay, my name is Kip Janes. I uh, grew up in Bloomfield. My dad took six neighborhood, neighborhood kids to the circus that day. Um, he got us all out. He We bailed out. I had to be six or seven. We bailed out from the top of the bleachers onto a mound of soft dirt, and he just told us to um, get out of there and uh, find our way back towards a point where he could connect with us. And then he went back with his, his pocket knife and slid the tent so that other people could get out. It's an extremely emotional thing for me. I uh, read about a friend of mine called me and told me there was an article in Connecticut Magazine about the circus fire, which I read, and then I called him and told him about what my dad did, and I understand a woman called in and uh, remarked about a man who has slit the tent so that people could get out. That was my father. Uh, Kip, uh, was your father okay after that tragedy? Pardon me? Did your father, was your father able to survive that tragedy? He came, he went back and helped. Yes, ma'am, he mm -hmm. was. And get all six kids out and get, get them all back to Terry Plains Road in Bloomfield. And, you, and as you know, there was no such thing as cell phones. So um, it was really kind of a tragic celebration when he mm. arrived home with all the kids. Mm. Well, thank you so much uh, for telling us about your father, one of the heroes that day. Uh, this is where we live. Stuart Onan uh, with us, who wrote the book, The Circus Fire. Uh, so many stories, uh, Stuart. What do you think the legacy of this fire uh, is today? Uh, well, it, it's a touchstone in, in our history, I think, um, uh, You know, for a certain generation. Um, again, people knew exactly where they were when they heard about the circus fire or, or were at it or didn't go to it there. Uh, but in terms of changing the laws of the state, uh, it, 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 it did a great deal. I mean, immediately... They put in some stopgap uh, uh, restrictions on 
temporary structures, um, and 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 they're in place to this day. And in fact, they were so stringent that the rest of the country uh, adopted them. Um, they also found a way to put this city manager position together, which made sure that the different departments actually talked to each other. Because at the time, there was no official you know, impetus for the police department to talk to the fire department, or the fire department to talk to the building department, or for the building department to talk to the health department. Now, there were health department officials, building department, building department officials, fire department officials, and police department officials on the lot on the 5th and on the 6th, and yet there was no coordination whatsoever. And so Mayor Mortensen, the first thing he did was said, we need these departments to talk to each other so we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Stuart Onan, again, is author of The Circus Fire, a true story of an American tragedy, um, a really well-written, detailed book, hard to read at times, but important to, to remember what happened that day. Stuart, we thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thanks, Lucy. Also with us, Harry Lichtenbaum, one of the survivors. Uh, he uh, came in today uh, to tell us a little bit of his story. We really appreciate it, Harry. Thank you. It was so wonderful to meet you. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to learn more about how some families are still looking for closure. Dave Altamari from the Hartford Current will be here with the latest. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We learned there were 168 people who died during the Hartford Circus Fire in 1944, but not all of the deceased were identified. Six victims were placed in unmarked graves at Norwood Cemetery in Hartford. One of the graves had been exhumed in the 1990s, and the remains were identified and sent back to the family of Eleanor Cook. This fall, two more graves were exhumed. To tell us about why this happened recently, joining us by phone is Hartford Current reporter David Altamari. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing okay. So tell us, you know, what led the Connecticut Medical Examiner to decide to exhume these two graves, I believe, back in October? Yes, he he actually went to court and got judges' approval to uh, exhume um, two female uh, victims who were buried at uh, the Northwood Cemetery as unknown victims of the fire. There is a, uh, besides the unknown victims that were buried, there were also several people um, who are still officially listed as missing from the circus fire. And one of them is a woman from Vermont by the name of Grace Fifield. And her granddaughter, who lives down in the Charlotte area, um, contacted uh, Dr. Gill, the medical examiner, and asked about trying to see if it's possible that one of those women buried as unknown victims could actually be her grandmother. Mm. And so now in 2019, uh, there's more uh, DNA technology uh, that has been advanced. Uh, and so how in the world did the medical examiner's office think about not only exhuming, but trying to figure out if these remains are indeed uh, this woman's grandmother? Well, the first step was the actually exhumed the bodies, which they did in early November. They weren't sure what they were going to find. I mean, these people had been buried 75 years ago. They were pleasantly surprised that they were buried in cement vaults, which they hoped would preserve their bones from flooding and, and you know, deterioration. 
Uh, they removed the femurs, uh, some teeth, uh, some other bones from both graves. And the hope is still to extract DNA from them and first do a one-on-one test against Grace uh, Fifield's granddaughter to see if there's a match. And if there's not, to then um, hopefully do uh, genetic DNA testing, uh, the new tool and DNA testing uh, around the country. Can you tell us more? You were there when these uh, remains were exhumed or disinterred. Uh, can you tell us more about the team working on uh, this case, uh, so to speak, the anthropologists involved, the two specific graves, uh, what they do know about the remains now that they've been able to, to take a look at them? Yes, there were two graves that, um, that, they, uh, that they exhumed, um, number 4512 and number 2019. They were buried as numbers since I don't know, didn't know who they were. The the Hartford Police Department Crime Squad, uh, the Medical Examiner's Office, uh, the State's Attorney's Office, Hartford State's Attorney's Office were all involved. The Public Works Department, obviously, because they needed a backhoe to, to dig up the graves, um, were all involved in the exhumation of the bodies. Um, they actually didn't realize. They they, st- they actually dug the wrong way, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, when they were trying to dig up the first uh, body, they didn't realize that the bodies had been placed in the graves feet first, not head first. And so they dug for almost like six feet deep and didn't find anything, and they were puzzled by that. And then they realized they were on the wrong side of the headstone, and they dug up. The, the, the remains. They took, uh, like I said, they had taken bones, several of femurs, teeth. The uh, anthropologist has done an examination of the bones, and she estimates that um, number 4512 is between 25 and 45 years of age and was around 5 foot 7 tall, uh, feet tall. And at the second one, number 2019, it was about 5'4", and probably somewhere between 20 and 50 years old. Now, one of the interesting things is at the time in 1944, the coroner on the death certificate for number 4512 had indicated that he thought that she was an African-American woman. And Dr. Gill, um, that was one of the things he was hoping to at least be able to confirm one way or another when they uh, exhumed the bones. And the anthropologist uh, indeed said that the coroner was correct, that that number 4512 is likely an African-American woman, which means she would not be, could not be Grace Fifield. Mm. Um, Have you been in contact with uh, Grace Fifield's family uh, since this latest um, update? And, you know, what is their uh, response, David? The the last time I talked to her, her name is Sandra, uh, was... Maybe a month or so ago, uh, they had tried, they're still trying to extract DNA. The anthropologist said that she was a little disappointed in the condition of the bones after they got them back to the, to the medical examiner's office and laid them out, that they, had, they were in a little worse shape than she anticipated or was hoping. So they're still trying to figure out, as we speak, if they can extract DNA from the two victims. 
And she, Sandra, is aware that they have in the bodies, and she's um, ready and willing to give her DNA when the time comes. And so uh, just to, to recap, uh, one of the uh, ro- graves that was exhumed, uh, the remains most likely from an African-American woman, so could not be her grandmother, but there's still maybe a chance this other uh, grave that was exhumed could be her grandmother. Yes. And, and the medical exam, I mean, she's aware that it's, I mean, it's a long shot that, that either of them would be her. The medical examiner has been in touch with this, it's called the DNA Dome Network. It's a group that specializes in trying to identify um, older John Doe's and Jane Doe's. Um, for example, one of the cases they worked on was identifying a baby from the Titanic. Um, and they've um, offered to help the medical examiner um, uh, possibly send the bones to one of the labs that they work with that specialize in extracting DNA from older bones. So I think the process uh, is going to end up with, I, I, I hope anyway, that some DNA will be put into some of the genetic databases to see if there is a way to find a match. And if it's not Grace Fifield that, that doesn't mean that's the end of a search, that they can do this new genetic testing and try to see if they can identify either of the victims. I want to thank Hartford Current reporter David Altamari for joining us again with an update uh, on uh, this mystery uh, that still remains. Uh, hopefully these families will find uh, some closure in the near future. David, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, Today's show produced by Jesse Steinmetz with help from Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at WMPR.org slash where we live. You can also download our podcast. As always, thanks for listening.